from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I have with us this week Kenny Gorman, co-founder of Eventador. And we're going to be talking real-time data. And uh, we'll explain what real-time data is, how you store it and how you use it. And then after the bottom of the hour, we'll cover what sort of security problems these real-time data sources pose to the world. Kenny, thank you for joining us this week. Brett, glad to be here. Thanks. So uh, give us a little bit of your background, um, the audience, why is a, this, should they trust you as an expert in uh, data storage and real-time data stores? Sure, sure. So um, I've been doing database work for uh, over 20 years. Um, it's basically what I've been doing. I started off uh, managing databases for large companies and uh, worked on the original uh, Match.com team for dating sites and then worked at eBay and PayPal and other companies like that, uh, every time being responsible for their data infrastructure. So uh, when payments were made via PayPal, that was a database transaction. When auctions happened at eBay, uh, those were database transactions. And the data landscape has changed over the last 20 years, but a lot of the problems haven't. And uh, our new company is focused on kind of the newer edge, the cutting edge of, of these types of things. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's basically what I've been doing for, for a very long time. Yeah. So as we talk data storage, so I think everyone out here in the audience is uh, comfortable with uh, a file and a folder and keeping files and folders on their computer. Sure. Uh, they understand that piece. Sure. But there's uh, ways that businesses and technology companies specifically, they store data in a more sophisticated manner than just files and folders. So uh, going through, uh, we'll just kind of hit some of the topics here so that uh, everybody has a, a common understanding. So. Um, a database and what is a, a database? How's that different than files and folders on my computer? Sure, sure. So you know, every time you do something like uh, a bank transaction or uh, use your iPhone to uh, to to do something, or you know, any time you're using a piece of technology, you're generating or consuming data, and that data has to be stored somewhere. Uh, that data has to live somewhere. And if you were to store it in files and folders, it's very slow or very hard to look up in a lot of cases for a lot of industrial use cases. Uh, so databases were invented uh, way back in the 70s to solve this problem. And they've evolved over time, but they kind of have the same constructs. And that is you're, you're able to format data, either structured or unstructured, on a computer. And there's a query language of some sort to then look at that data and retrieve it and return it to the user. So maybe it's your bank record or maybe it's you know a shopping list, or maybe it's you know someone that might, you might be interested in dating, whatever that data might be. Uh, but those are the queries that look at a large amount of data that are returned off a computer somewhere uh, that that you know makes your application do what it's supposed to do for the particular business. Yeah, and so there's different types of databases. So you have a, a relational database. How's that different than a non-relational database? Is that about databases for dating sites, or is that different? Uh... Right, right. So, you know, data can be used and consumed in many ways, and that'll typically drive what that data structure looks like and how that data is organized. And uh, way back in the 70s, when relational databases were starting to become popular, that was sort of the only way to look at data uh, was, was with a relational structure. Uh, these days, uh, there's lots of options. There's You can have data that's a video file or data that's a picture or data that's you know a mix of various things. And so databases have evolved to kind of allow for all of those types of media content. 
uh, and all all uh, being queryable and have security context and have storage properties and things like that to make them fast and easy to find and, and things like that. So, um, you know, there's uh, today the last uh, I don't know ten years I'd say we've had an explosion in the data field. In the data field, people you might hear the term big data or data driven companies or uh, these types of terms, and a lot of this is just we as a community, as people, are generating more data using phones, using tablets, using our computers, and that data has to go somewhere, and there has to be new types of data storage devices and data storage systems to return and query those kinds of data for, for folks. Yeah. So you mentioned querying a few times. So there's the the standard query language, uh, SQL, that I think a lot of folks have heard about. And then over the the last few years, you mentioned uh, you just mentioned some of these new data stores. There was this no SQL movement, which just mm -hmm. meant you query the data with something different than than SQL. Can you name a, a couple of kind of popular um, databases that are queried in a language that's not SQL? Right. Yeah, so right, exactly. C SQL, or Structured Query Language, has been around for a long time. It's very robust. It's um, A lot of people know it. Uh, when you go to school for computer science, they teach it. Uh, uh, in the last few years, uh, other paradigms have, have come about as well. Um, you see a REST-based query, so um, using uh, HTTP to query databases these days. You see something like, um, there's a database called MongoDB, which has its own query language. Um, and then you see something like a real-time database, and I think we'll talk about this more in the future, which really just puts a filter on the data. And we'll, we'll probably get into that a little bit more later. Um, so, you know, the query language can vary as much as anything else. And, uh, you know, developers these days have to keep abreast of all these technologies. And it's, it's vastly changing, and it's changing ra more rapidly and increasing in its, in its amount of change over the last few years. So... Uh, you mentioned, yeah, so real-time, so databases, there's uh, ones where they'll, you'll store the information forever. You may run a nightly job or a weekly batch job or a monthly report out of it. Um, and so you'd hint at kind of it real-time data stores. So now no one wants to uh, look at a report a month in arrears. Um, right. Businesses want to be able to see if I sold a customer 15 minutes ago, have I sold that customer something else before? Have they been to my store, my restaurant, my my ballpark. Uh, you go into the stadiums these days, they're putting RFID uh, tokens around so they can see where you're at in the stadium to help improve your right. experience. Yep. Uh, so accessing data slowly is no longer an option. So how are the technology companies uh, pulling the data into, it's not in a relational database, because uh, my understanding that would not be a great way to try to sort through that much data in the real-time manner. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating uh, change of events in the last few years. Uh, like you said, it started off where folks would query relational databases. And then, you know, like, for instance, when we worked at eBay, we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them because you just can't make one database do everything. And so you have the sprawl and you have just, you know, all sorts of databases everywhere for every different function. Um, and, and then so the NoSQL uh, movement came about and, you know, that changed the way data was stored and retrieved. But still, that data has got to be stored on a disk somewhere. And like I said earlier, data is being increasing is, is being generated at a massively increasing rate, and so yeah, you have to put those bytes somewhere. Um, technologies like uh, Apache Hadoop and Apache Spark do the similar thing. They're all basically looking at data, they're searching through the data, returning it to the user. And most of the time, if you're looking at your iPhone and you want to know, you know, an instant stock quote or you want to know an instant sports score or any of that stuff, you can't wait for a query to go through and search through 10 million records to figure that out. And so that's what's kind of led to the rise of real time. And what that says is, let me just 
send the data through a system. And as that data comes through, I'm going to filter it or alert on it or make it do something or display something into an application at that moment. Maybe I'm even aggregating it. Maybe I'm even saying, you know, uh, show me the top five of X or the top five, uh, you know, uh, batting averages or something like that as those come through. And that's the kind of real-time data architecture that's starting to become very exciting and prevalent these days. So um, example of a, a real-time database, and your your company um, uses this open source project called Apache Kafka. Mm-hmm. So uh, can you give us a little bit of a history of, of Kafka? How did it become a, a project? Uh, who are the folks that, that got it going? And, and why is it something that we're starting to see more use of out there these days? Right, right. So... Apache Kafka um, started off as a project at LinkedIn, and uh, LinkedIn basically was building a enterprise data bus, if you will, um, that was taking data from various data sources, sending it around there uh, in- internally in their company for consumption in various uh, areas. So, for instance, marketing wanted to look at it, or they wanted to power your your feed or suggestions based on it. So it wasn't just internal data, it was also data powering the application, basically all their data. They wanted to make it all available. Um, and this is sort of part of the data democratization movement that maybe we'll talk about a little bit. Um, but allowing basically internal customers, marketing department or engineering department, to consume this real-time feed of data and make better products out of it. Um, and so that's really what led to kind of thinking more about real-time data. Um, and Apache Kafka is an implementation of a pub-sub real-time database. It has uh, a commit log architecture. It looks a lot like a database in some regards, and um, and it works fantastically. It's very scalable, very fast, and really does the job that folks needed to do, which is deliver that data very in a very fresh manner. Um, it's very easy to use in terms of its uh, pro- programming interface, and uh, it's very scalable and fast. So, so um, explain uh, pub sub as you you mentioned there uh, a term uh, that folks in the data world are going to understand people that have worked around message queues or in uh, real-time messaging systems. That What's a PubSub and why is that interesting? Right, right. Good point. So it stands for Publish and Subscribe. And so uh, in, a, in a, a messaging and real-time data um, context, what that means is I might publish uh, data about um, where someone is, perhaps it's their GPS coordinates from a phone, and that might go into Apache Kafka. And someone might subscribe to that topic and say, hey, I would like to know about the GPS coordinates. And they could consume that, that topic as those coordinates came through. So you can imagine if someone walked down the street, um, who would be publishing the latest and greatest uh, location data that would flow through the database. Someone could then read that location data as a subscriber. And you can have many subscribers. So the marketing department could do that. Uh, the engineering department, uh, department could consume it into an application and perhaps show it on a dashboard, things like that. So. It allows for data to be uh, organized into topics or feeds. Uh, folks can subscribe to those feeds depending on uh, what type of uh, information is in there. You can name them. You can manage them separately. And it really makes for a great architecture for most, you know, for modern companies. Yeah. So if I was on Facebook and I had a, a feature in Facebook that said, show me my friends near me, um, I could subscribe to that. And then if I, whatever friend got within a mile of me, if I was a subscriber to a data feed like that, then it would pop up a message and say, hey, Brett. Kenny's within a, a mile of you now. Right. Yeah, exactly. If you were to use Facebook as a as sort of the example, you might have the friend feed be one topic, and you might have a Messenger be another topic. Um, you know, maybe you had events be another topic, and then people could consume those individually. So maybe the Messenger app would only subscribe to messages, things like that. Yeah. 
So, and then in data stores, there's uh, this concept of uh, consistency and eventual consistency. Uh, as you, you start to get towards real time and distributed, how, how does this work? And I guess even help uh, just explain to folks consistency versus eventual consistency to start with as well. Right. Right, you're putting me on the spot. Um, so the interesting thing about um, databases and consistency is, um, going back to that bank example that we talked about earlier, uh, if, if databases weren't consistent, your bank balance would, might not show up correctly. Uh, you might withdraw some money and then uh, it would look like the money never was withdrawn. Uh, but databases and relational databases inherently do this. They do it very easily and it's an inherent property of how they work. Um, but modern technologies um, and modern applications don't always need that level of transactional guarantee. Um, if something, if someone posts to your Facebook wall, you don't need to see it exactly when it happens. If it shows up a half hour later, it doesn't really matter. You're not going to know the difference and you're not going to really care. There's no reason to actually care about the exact time that that gets posted. So databases have evolved to allow for that. There's different styles of databases. Uh, NoSQL databases are uh, notorious for having lesser guarantees of uh, uh, atom prop or atomic properties um, and, and consistency guarantees, although they do have some. Uh, and real-time data stores basically have a lot less or none. Uh, in the case of Apache Kafka, it has uh, guarantees to disk. So when you write something to it, it will write that and persist that to disk so that it's safe and will never go away. But it's not guaranteeing you any sort of transactional order. So it, it works great for things that are flowing and moving, like the GPS example I talked about or um, the friend feed example I talked about. Um, and, and, and that's what's really great about sort of modern database technology is you can kind of pick and choose which one uh, you want to use for a given problem. So relational databases haven't gone away. They've evolved too, and they're still used for a variety of interesting use cases. But now as a data professional or a data scientist or a data engineer, you have the choice of deciding, hey, which one of these you know, N different technologies should I use for my project to make sure uh, it's going to, and to make sure it has the right properties for the, for the use case at hand. So it's pretty interesting times in that regard. Yeah, as a, a technologist these days, uh, everything no longer looks just like a nail because uh, yeah, right. we have we have more than just w one hammer to swing to to go build things. That's right. Uh, so with real time data stores, and these are becoming more interesting, as you said, because we are getting all of these uh, device feeds and real time information feeds now um, coming in, and people expect to be able to get answers back. Um, in a very rapid manner or to have the services that they're using tailored to them in a in a in a real time uh, sort of way. So as a if I was a, a business owner out there um, and I'm looking to incorporate real time data into to, into my business, um, I mean, these Facebook, these LinkedIn, these big tech companies are doing it. Is there a, a way for me as a software developer uh, or an engineer at a, a smaller company to uh, start thinking about and using real time. Uh, for sure, I you know I think that um, you know I spoke about this about a year ago, and I started to say um, I was I was actually in London speaking about this, and we started saying um, we, we were speaking to CTOs and, and business leaders in London, and their biggest concern was um, security around data number one, and then number two was freshness of data. So how can I make my applications behave or, or appear to be more real time, and their technology stacks just weren't just weren't doing it. And, and this is one of the reasons we, we founded Aventador. Um, we believe that real-time data has an inherent value, uh, greater inherent value uh, than d data stored on disk or data that's you know, hard to retrieve. So um, uh, you know, if you're building an application and you work at LinkedIn or you worked at Apple or one of these companies, you, you can afford maybe the specialized staff and, and maybe to build out a data center 
to do this kind of thing. Um, but if you are, you know, a four-man firm and you want to build a real-time iOS app or whatever, or maybe you're a little bit bigger, you're a mid-sized company, but you just don't have the expertise, uh, then you're going to want to look at a vendor. You're going to look at want to look at someone like Aventador or someone like Amazon or one of the other folks that are doing this kind of thing uh, to actually build a real-time uh, data store. And Apache Kafka is one of those options. You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is CyberTalk Radio. We're here with Kenny Gorman of Aventador, and we're talking about all the different types of ways that companies store data and that you could store data inside your business from a relational databases founded in the 1970s all the way through to more modern real-time architectures uh, that are being used by the big tech giants and um, becoming available for all of us. So, Kenny, we've gone through talking about the different types of data stores, and I want to start to go into the security aspects around them uh, to a certain uh, extent here before the bottom of the hour break uh, to talk through uh, how do you authenticate each of these different things and how do you kind of have typically um, secured different types of data stores over time. So uh, let's start with like the, the big traditional one, the relational databases. Right. So, you know, I used to be a DBA for, say, Oracle databases way back when. And security was part of your job. You, you basically were in charge of securing the database from top to bottom. The good news is there wasn't too many different databases. There was maybe one or two or, and like I said earlier, in case of eBay, maybe 100. But you could do the same kind of policy in all of them. It was just Oracle security context and Oracle security controls. And, um, uh, and that worked pretty well. It was very well vetted. It was mature software. Uh, there was well-known security um, policies and practices. Um, you know, when you went to get trained as a DBA, they taught you how to do it and, and what the vulnerabilities were. And if there was issues and, and exploits that came about, uh, those were patched relatively quickly by, you know, the, the major corporations, in this case, Oracle. Um, and there was a lot of visibility on them. So it was all very kind of well-known in a well-known space. Um, and, you know, you kind of just followed the playbook and, and you know, uh, worked through it that way. These days, um, it's changed. It's changed in a number of different dimensions that make the attack vectors um, exponentially more tricky. And that is, um, first of all, the advent of the cloud and moving databases to the cloud. So now your database may not live on a server that you can touch. It lives out there in the virtual cloud somewhere. And so there's, you know, there's a perception, at least a perception, if not a reality, around having a lesser amount of control over that server. So that's one thing. The other thing is the database technologies themselves are maybe less mature. Like I said, they're exploding. So there's new ones coming on the market. Each one of those has its own security context, security nuances that have to be dealt with. Um, you know, this is, this is my second uh, database as a service company. And we take uh, security, and they're both, you know, obviously in the cloud. We take security awfully serious for this reason. Um, and we do a whole bunch of measures internally to make sure that we've got um, layer four uh, masking, we've got ACLs, uh, we've got um, you know the latest and greatest patching going on, things like this to make sure that the the newer technologies have um, an even greater level of scrutiny on top of them. Um, and you know exploits do come out. There's more attack vectors in a streaming application because of the number of endpoints than there is in uh, something like an Oracle database. That's that's a little bit more well known and more centralized. Yeah, in that relational database world, um, uh, the kind of architecture I've typically seen is you have some application server that is allowed to read and write to and from the database. You don't um, typically allow end clients or Internet of Things devices not going to write directly to the database itself. 
uh, where so the, some of the things I've been reading, it looks like in these real-time data stores, that application server doesn't, there isn't an, an application server really sitting in between the store and that Internet of Things device or that, that end publisher that's pushing messages into these real-time streaming stores now. That's exactly correct. So with, with that, in that, that, that Oracle-style world, you had a well-defined list of database users, who they were. You, um, if all of a sudden a user started behaving badly, you could uh, block that user. You could go pick up the phone and call them and go, hey, Eric, why is your account off this app server doing something weird to the database? Now you have these publishers, and you've got some authentication for a publisher to be able to, to push messages in. Uh, but in the event now, you could have this publisher could be a hardware device that's got some specific code on it. It could be um, a computer, and that computer runs a piece of software that publishes, but that it's going to interact with other things in the operating system. You've sounds like, as you said, many more variables to, to deal with in this uh, world now, and you're um, authenticating through HTTP or all sorts of different, like how do those messages typically get published to a real-time data store? Right. Good question. So in the case of Apache Kafka, there's a number of options. Um, so first of all, you'd want to use SSL, secure socket layer connections, uh, to connect to uh, the, the, the client, the broker itself, as, as it's called. Um, and so your application would be designed with that in mind, and that encrypts the data over the wire. Um, you also want to make sure that you have a proper access control list uh, design. In our case, we actually implement that as our service. Um, that means that no computers that you don't know uh, can c connect and talk to it. So you actually say, hey, this IP address, this IP address, this IP address are all allowed through. Everything else is not allowed. In fact, when you provision something on our service, we don't allow you any, any connections. It's just simply uh, you have to say, hey, I want a, you have to actually poke the hole in, in the firewall, essentially, to say, uh, I want to allow this client through. So um, sort of having a, a closed database by default is a big help. So you secure the uh, the data store in a, in a way with, as you said, a firewall there where you have to permit the individual clients uh, to connect through. So if we're out there on the Internet these days, um, folks will do uh, Internet IP address spoofing um, or I can... In many cases, maybe we're all sitting behind a network address translation where right. um, hundreds of devices could be um, showing up as one IP address uh, to the receiving machine. Right. Uh, how does the uh, the authentication methods in these databases take those sorts of pieces into account? Right. So you still have the same user ID type authentication in the in this context. Um, so you know that's that hasn't changed, and so that's still there and that's still fairly robust. Um, in addition, um, you know, we're based on AWS, Amazon AWS, and so we actually provision uh, VPCs or a private container around every customer. So things are fairly walled off. Um, you're, you're really in control of your own security context at that part, at that point. And the, the real thing is about education and making sure that folks know when they, when they do something, what are the implications of what they're doing, and, and does that leave you open or doesn't you? I think the controls are largely there. It's a matter of uh, making sure people can effectively use them. So many of the, it sounds, similar controls available now in this real-time world that were used in the, the relational database kind of client-server modeled world, except there you had yeah, it's a slow, probably rigorous change control process where if you were going to add a user, it went through a review committee and all of these things got tested in a staging environment. Um, how is that changing on the, the 
release and change and update process for people uh, making those those database configuration changes now or data store configuration changes. Yeah, that, that's a really good topic. You know, when you develop software, you you are taking on a security role as well, and you have to be very careful about. Um, <clears throat> perhaps releasing software too quickly. You know, there's this moniker, fail fast or whatever. Well, you don't want to fail security fast. You don't want to fail at all. Um, so, you know, you have, you have that companies developing applications really need to consider the security implications of the code they're writing and the services they're using uh, to make sure that they um, understand the complete picture and don't rush it. You have to take that into account for sure. Yeah. So after the break, <clears throat> we will dive much deeper into... Uh, securing these modern data stores. Uh, Kenny's kind of gone through and hinted at some of the things you should be doing uh, or the things that you've always been doing. Uh, Know who your users are. um, Only permit the ones that you absolutely need. And uh, we will dive in deeper here after news, uh, traffic, and weather updates. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm here this week with Kenny Gorman uh, from Aventador. He's uh, one of the co-founders there, and he's a data storage and a data systems expert. Um, before the break, we covered all different types of data stores, relational databases, these modern real-time streaming data stores, and PubSub and many things. If you missed the segment, we'll... Uh, be online in the archive on a Tuesday after the show. Uh, you can find that archive at www.cybertalkradio.com. Uh, you can look us up on YouTube or the iTunes podcast service as well. Kenny, we, we've gone through and kind of given everybody the background education on all of these different types of data stores, and we hinted a little bit into uh, even though you're doing these fancy new modern data store things now, you still need to think about security and roles and who are the people that are accessing them and, and what type of permissions do they need. The same, this, these, those things are not changing, um, but the number of data stores are changing rapidly and the number of applications um, out there changing rapidly as well. It's not just Oracle and Microsoft and maybe a handful of database vendors anymore. There's hundreds of data stores, hundreds of ways to authenticate right. to them. Um, hundreds of different uh, services that get added on, like with this with Kafka, these uh, publish and subscribe thing. It, people write um, subscribers that do different tasks for you. So if if I was gonna make a Kafka database and uh, needed to do things with GPS information, someone's already written something that does GPS subscription and lets me do processing. I'm sure. Um, so now I, I have uh, developers potentially that don't necessarily understand my system uh, as well as they would have in the back in the older days where they would have written all these things themselves from the ground up and you'd have a real deep understanding it's for it's true for sure i you know i think back in the 90s when we were doing you know oracle largely and you know i remember feeling somewhat safe about folks data you know i know the data's in there i know it's safe i know we haven't been attacked i know that data's gone nowhere um as we've you know grown as a as a community and as the as the computer science realm has grown and the in the data realm has grown, um, the number of attack vectors and the number of different databases and and different styles of databases have grown so much that it's really a scarier world than it's been before. I think the message isn't that it's um, gotten safer per se; it's probably gotten worse. I was on a a panel for Percona Live last year, and we were with there with folks from EMC and uh, Facebook and a variety of other large companies. And I think we all voted that the most, the biggest concern we had around data was not 
um, you know, query tuning or backup strategies or uh, things like that. It was mostly around how do we secure this data. Um, when you're in the realm and you look at the kind of things that are being put into these data stores, um, a lot of times it's it's personally identifiable information or PII data, um, it's location data, it's family data, it's social data. Um, it, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you'd be pretty scared. Um, and I think you know it, that's why companies, uh, first of all, have to have a, a an ethical uh, component there, and that's you know that's not always in the same uh, realm as as um, you know business objectives. And I think those those two things need to, to unify for sure. Um, so that's kind of my commentary on that. I think, you know, uh, as we've grown, um, one of the reasons that, you know, businesses like mine exist is because it is tricky. Uh, there are nuances to these software platforms and, uh, you should hire someone who's been doing it before to, to help you with it. Uh, because, um, you know, doing it alone can, can lead to, to pretty big failures. We were just talking this morning about these phones that have come out from, from, uh, China just this morning and they have a, a exploit built into them. And they're sending location data back to some, you know, data store in, in China. That's terrifying for a lot of folks. And, uh, you know, that kind of uh, those kind of exploits are, you know, that's a, that's the modern way that that security is, is breached um, with data for sure. Yeah, I think there was uh, for those that have followed the uh, the Internet and the rise of these mobile apps. Uh, Foursquare was a popular uh, app to do location check in and you could become the mayor of a location and, and maybe get some benefits for that. And people figured out a way on Foursquare's API to fake their GPS coordinates from the app to the phone, and they could check in at places they weren't actually at. So I could check in at the Eiffel Tower in Paris while I was sitting here in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, so you you have these uh, data stores that potentially uh, have false data in them as well. Um, as a, a provider, um, how, how do you need to think about... Um, people maliciously using your application um, or potentially putting false data in um, to your app to then trigger additional behavior. Yeah, from a, from a business perspective, our, you know, our, our take is that we provide the platform for you to build your business and, and to, to move data through it. Um, and we provide the security controls around that. So those, those contexts are like you know, our contract with, with our user. Um, now, we don't tell them that they can't make a dating site or they can't make a uh, you know, some sort of app tracking site or whatever. So, you know, it's, it's true. The developers these days using platforms really need to be careful about what kind of data they're sending and the, and the software exploits in the in their client software that, that could be used. Um, you know, we don't inspect their data. We don't filter their data for any sort of, you know, kind of correctness because that's not part of our, our business um, charter, frankly. We provide the platform for folks to build their own. Um, but they should, they should take... Um, great uh, satisfaction knowing that, you know, we secure the back end of that. No one's going to go in and, and start just, you know, attaching a filter to that and and uh, reading off their data or things like that. So, um, you know, that's that's the contract that we provide. But I think you bring up a good point. Um, developers and, so, you know, software developers and folks building these applications, um, you know, even hardware designers are, are able to build in exploits these days, like the phone I just mentioned, where, where you know, that kind of that kind of data could be sent could be sent anywhere. Um, and so that's um, a particularly uh, burgeoning area of, of interest for, you know, computer science and for the industry as a whole, for sure. Yeah, because, I mean, it's one thing to have a, an exploit there in that Foursquare app where I can check in at some place I'm not actually at and become mayor. But if we're using these real-time data uh, systems to make, uh, say, 
credit fraud risk decisions of should I authorize this transaction on Brett's credit card or not? And uh, I'm able to spoof that I'm in Boston and I'm not in San Antonio or I'm in. And now that the credit card company is seeing Brett in multiple locations at once and it goes, well, he can't actually he's a human. He can't be in multiple places at once. So we're going right. to block some of these transactions. Those type of, of data stores and data systems have uh, a real need to be able to determine like well which one of those is real or because if i am in boston and i've traveled from there and somebody's using my car doing a replay attack or something back here in san antonio it's got to be able to figure out which transaction to block um, which to to filter and the more real time you're going to make a decision um it, this seems to to like it takes all the human analysis out of it we're right. now like letting the machines do things well so an interesting area of computer science around this is um, is machine learning, and real time data stores and machine learning go great together. Um, you may have noticed. I think folks are are kind of um, are seeing this in their everyday lives. If you ever gone to a place with your credit card and it just gets blocked for some reason, and it's because maybe you traveled out of a different pattern, or you did something different, or you bought gas on a different day, or whatever that might be. Um, you know, if you were buying electronics in Taiwan, but you just got gas this morning at Bucky's here in Texas. Um, you get flagged for that, and th th that won't go through. And I think that's the kind of architectures and that's the kind of design paradigms that are going to be happening going forward. Um, you know, it, it's pretty easy to uh, to attach uh, machine learning algorithms to real time streams. In fact, that's a lot of, a lot of what our customers are, look to do. And um, when you do that, then you can basically filter those things in real time. You can make decisions in real time. Again, it's software, so you know somebody wrote that software, and it could have bugs. It could have exploits itself. But they're at least attacking the, the problem of data quality and, and fraud and abuse right there in the stream in real time. And so the interesting thing of, of, in terms of real time is, you know, now you can shut that off, that transaction off immediately. You don't wait for a batch job tomorrow and say, oh, wow, last night there was eight things that got bought that weren't supposed to or, you know, uh, you know eight different locations that were spoofed. It's, it's a right now thing. And that's why real time data, machine learning and, and security are kind of an interesting uh, trio. Yeah. So with the cost to store data going down and uh, with it now getting accessed in real time, uh, many businesses out there are keeping everything and trying to, to do more with it, making it available into to more systems. Um, as a individual uh, out here, do I need to be concerned uh, about places that my information is getting sent to? Uh, so you talked about that Chinese phone hack. That sounds concerning. Are there things that uh, we should be looking for as individuals or business owners or asking our suppliers or partners, the, the people that we buy products from, uh, about what they're storing and how? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two dimensions there. there one dimension is the cost of storage has gone way down, um, but the, 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 the time of delivery of that data has gone up because there's more of it. So I think, you know, there's a couple of dimensions to think about from when you're, when you're out there and, and you're thinking about, hey, I'm generating data, or I'm building a project, or I'm, I'm, you know, I want to store this stuff. I think, first of all, you need, to, you need to really take a look at what vendors you're using and know, have a relationship with them directly um, and understand that they control the components um, that the data is going to be stored on. So um, in a lot of cases, you know, like for instance, Aventador uses AWS. Um, uh, or we would, you know, tend to use our own computers. But uh, in this case, we use AWS, and, and AWS has security controls and security contexts and auditability and all these kind of things that really, really matter. Um, and we expose that stuff. So, you know, you, as a 
customer, you can take a look and say like, oh, you get a you get your own VPC, you get your own SSL creds, you can generate your own SSL creds on our site. Um, so you know you can have that kind of capability to understand that the data you're storing is going to be uh, going to be going to be protected as much as you can uh, in this day and age. Uh, you know that said, you know anytime you're using uh, something that's like a, a web property or a website, you should be using you know HTTPS. So it's using SSL. Uh, if you're using applications like Box.net or Dropbox, you know those those folks do a, do a really really good job. So, you know I can I don't know maybe give them a give them a shout out stuff like that. Uh, Amazon, if you're building a business, does a good job with S3 and for file storage and things like that. Um, so it's really kind of like you know a best of breed kind of uh, situation. You really have to understand. Um, and, and you know in this day and age, it's great because Google has indexed everything. And so you can go to Google and pretty quickly find out who has had uh, attacks or who has, you know, maybe not uh, had a serious uh, uh, eye on their security architecture in the past. Um, you know, it'll go to Hacker News, uh, number one, if you get attacked or if you get uh, broken into. And a lot of these technologies have their own exploits. So you can look into, you know, the, the security components of uh, Kafka or MongoDB or Oracle or those types of things yourself as well and understand them as well. And and your vendor should, if it's an online database vendor, those vendors should be able to provide those controls out to you so that you can secure your, your stuff yourself. Or even and like in our case, we, we basically make it so you have to uh, you have, have to operate those security controls in order to open it up to even use it at all. Yeah. So uh, out there, you, you have, as you said, many data stores, many choices. So logging, auditability, that trail, the history... Um, how are people thinking of uh, database backups today? So you uh, used to keep a, a second copy of all of these things, maybe in a database cluster. Or you would make a, a read-only that would be a, a business intelligence database that would be kind of the, the copy of the live database from yesterday. Uh, what are folks doing uh, today with keeping copies or replicas of systems? Yeah, it, you know, there used to be this, um, it, the, in a word, it's gone crazy. Um, it used to be that, uh, you know, you would, you would generate a piece of data and you would not want to duplicate it because it was expensive to duplicate it. You, you'd maybe have a replica and then a backup. And then you maybe have some tapes. Like that was the way you did it in the 90s, in the, in the early 2000s. Um, in, in recent times, the data democratization says that you want to send data to whoever needs to consume it and you want to enable them to do their jobs. That mean, and, and the same thing with the NoSQL movement. You're basically denormalizing and copying data everywhere, and so data has many, many more copies now, uh, which is good from a recoverability standpoint. But from a privacy and security standpoint, that could be troublesome. So um, it's very, very different landscape than it used to be. Um, you know, I think the good news is that uh, applications that tend to be denormalized tend to be things more like friend feeds and tweets, and a lot less like your bank records. And so, you know, the inherent nuances of those types of things give you some, give you some very, you know, perhaps poor, but at least some level of um, uh, security in that, or at least in terms of duplicate data. So, you know, it's changed and it's, and it's, and it's getting, you know, worse, if you will, uh, because there's so much more data being generated. Um, you know, when you have your phone on in your pocket, you might have three or four apps running and they're tracking, um, you know, they're, they're polling continuously because they're notifying you of, you know, a new text message and they're notifying you of a new article or they're notifying you where your directions are, where you're moving. I mean, all that data is getting sent somewhere and it's all got GPS stuff tagged to it. It's all got your user ID tagged to it. 
Um, and then that data doesn't just sit in one database and then get backed up. It goes across some entire organization for a variety of things to be um, to consume it. Um, the other dimension is that a lot of this data is being aggregated. And so it's anonymous at that point. And I think that's, um, you know, folks can take a little bit of um, comfort knowing that, you know, when you generate more and more data, it means that the detail's harder to actually look through, not easier. And so in order to consume this data in real time and make effective applications, most of the time, I'll say, most of the time is it's an aggregate. And so it's like the average user does this. So it doesn't really say, you know, Brett does is doing something right now. It's, it's basically an average users are tending to, you know, go and, and, and attend this uh, football event right now. And, or they're, they're all going to get beer right now. And, and the sensor sees that. That's not just saying like, oh, Brett, I know where Brett is exactly at this moment. He just pulled out his credit card and I can go grab it now or something. So it's a lot more, um, you know, there's a little bit of comfort there, I guess, I suppose. Yeah. So as you, you have all of these multiple subscribers and these real-time data feeds, you uh, just did talk through that now portions of the database are effectively copied on each of these subscribers. And the subscribers may or may not clean up after themselves. So they might get messages. They may receive these feeds. They may keep it there um, as a, a data um, storage expert going through, are there best practices to recommend to software developers on these uh, when, when you're a subscriber to a real-time data feed? Is there something they should be doing as a, a subscribing app to clean up after themselves? Yeah, for the most part, uh, real-time data feeds, because of the velocity, means that they're going to actually delete the data when they're done consuming it. So I think uh, real-time data has an inherent advantage in that sense. Uh, you can't really hang on to, to millions and millions of records because it just makes a mess and it'll crash whatever you know device you're consuming it from. So um, you know that's that's a nice that's sort of a nicety that goes along with real time data. For the most part, it's either an aggregate or it's throwaway because you just can't consume it the fire hose that fast um, or, or most devices or, or, or most things. So now if you're if you're Apple or or you know Facebook or one of these large organizations and you really do need that detailed data. Um, you know, obviously you, you could store it and you could keep it. Um, encryption's a big thing there. You want to make sure that you're encrypting that data after you've consumed it. Um, like for instance, for instance, if you're archiving it or something. Um, but even a lot of those folks, um, you know, they'll, they'll encrypt it, they'll, um, compress it and they'll stick it off on some cold storage somewhere similar to how they were backed up in the old days. So, um, you know, there is that. Yeah. So it's like my, uh, my phone is an example. I don't have my entire Facebook historical feed timeline on my phone my phone's got the records it needs to serve me the the information right now um, but as a subscriber to my own timeline um, my consumption device there doesn't have the whole timeline itself in it that's a great um, example yeah so in the event that somebody were to hack my phone right now they might have the stuff that's stored in that cache there in the application but they'd actually have to go authenticate back in through facebook and go go back through the rest of my timeline to get all of the, the previous messages or full history. Correct. And, and that, that's a good example of what I was talking about with like with tweets or Facebook or these types of things. The data is not necessarily the same kind of transactional uh, data as a bank record or, or whatever. And that data is, is largely transient and, and can be thrown away after it's been consumed by the user. So that's, you know, from a security context, that's a big plus. Yeah. So as we go from these real-time kind of toy consumer entertainment apps to real-time, uh, real life and making decisions, whereas maybe I'm going to have medical devices that are on me now that are connected to a, a real-time data store, uh, are there 
additional recommendations for software developers, for business owners that are going to be developing these kind of products? How do they take it to the next level of security so that um, if I'm an insulin pump feeding real-time information back to a platform to monitor your health information, decide how much insulin to give you, the, the different, there's a big difference there with that data getting exposed or that data getting tampered with versus my feed getting tampered with and me telling uh, you to visit the wrong website on Facebook or something. Right, right, exactly. Uh, you know, more and more um, big companies are starting to instrument uh, – and small companies are starting to instrument all sorts of devices, like you say, medical devices where, you know, your life may be in danger, but also things like, you know, locomotives where, you know, they could crash or there could be a, a spill or, you know, some sort of, you know, environmental issue or whatever. So big problems can exist. Um, and, you know, industrial controls went through this, you know, lots of different, uh, you know, uh, automation components and, and, you know, it, it, you know, during the Industrial Revolution, we went through this. Anytime you automate something, you're going to find new, not find new problems with it. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're, we're very early on sort of the Internet of Things and, and sending data everywhere. And, um, and as you point out, I think rightly that uh, now it's like, well, how do we make sure that's secure? And, and, and there's other dimensions. How do we make sure it's fast and how do we make sure it's correct and, you know, lots of other things. But from a security standpoint, I think, you know, the things that you need to look for um, if you're if you're attempting to build an application or you're responsible for a team of folks that are doing this or you're a developer in a, in a team of folks or whatever, uh, you work maybe you work for Bosch and you're, you're making that kind of thing or you're GE or whatever, uh, you know, you're going to want to think about a few things. First of all is you're going to want to make sure that encryption is part of your, uh, is part of your stack. You may be encrypting data uh, and sending that over the wire totally encrypted. It doesn't have to be everything. Perhaps it's just the parts that, that really matter. Uh, you're going to want to be uh, sanity checking your data for correctness. Um, and you can do that with fairly simple algorithms. Um, or you may go further and use something like machine learning algorithms to make sure that, uh, you know, like we talked the credit card fraud uh, capability earlier, uh, you may want to do something like that within your own realm. Um, if it's, uh, you know, industrial sensor controls, there's there's only so far that the, it, first of all, maybe, is, is it always an integer? Make sure it's an integer, you know, that kind of thing. Is there bounds for it? Well, make sure you're within those bounds. You know, that kind of data correctness and quality um, should be part of your application. You should be thinking about that. Uh, just like you, when you write tests for software to make sure that it's testing correctly, those tests should probably also test for, um, for reliability in terms of uh, did someone spoof it or... Uh, things like that. There's a there's an old trick uh, called SQL injection for SQL databases where you can, in a website, uh, actually put SQL into the URL and make it do something bad, like delete all the user accounts. Uh, this kind of paradigm hasn't actually changed. And so the way you do that, in you know, the way you protect against that in, in those applications is you basically lock down the code so that the code can't take, you know, uh, random strings of, of SQL and, and execute it. And there's there's well-known developer paradigms for that. And I think, you know, as we move forward, those paradigms need to be uh, built and, and, and um, maintained for the kind of the newer exploits as well. Yeah, and these, these newer systems, um, the paradigms are not as well understood. So as uh, your business may be able to go faster using some of these new systems, uh, but, uh, you may be able to get things done or prototyped out to market. But uh, before you really do uh, take it out, if this is going to be a self-driving car if it's going to be a medical device that um, can impact someone's health in real time um, you still need to go through really that audit testing control and, and the things that you um, would have done 
years ago, these new systems, while maybe they don't require you to do them, you still need to do them from a behavioral perspective and process perspective. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's a big responsibility because the technologies are vast and new and, and changing, and there's a lot to learn. Um, but, yeah, ultimately the responsibility is up to you to make sure that the data you gather and, and consume and, and, and create is, is, is correct. And, and, you know, the front door isn't wide open. We, we talked earlier, you know, mentioned earlier about the databases just being, you know, exploitable. Uh, you know, a few years ago, there was like 40,000 MongoDB databases wide open on the Internet. And that's that's just because not because of the fault of MongoDB, but people misconfigured them or opened them intentionally uh, and not knowing what they were doing. And I think if you're going to make a choice, make a choice to write your app and worry about your customer experience and leave the infrastructure components, the security components, the performance components, scalability components, the, the core data infrastructure up to someone who's done it for a really long time. And, and that's hedging your bets. Then you can worry about your time to market on your on your app and not have to worry about the time to market building some sort of security componentry behind some sort of server or some sort of database. Yeah. So uh, I'd like to thank uh, Kenny for joining us on Cyber Talk Radio this week. Uh, we covered uh, databases, data stores, and the uh, risks and security behind these modern real-time data apps. Um, one of the tips I took away uh, from this was uh, ask my vendors, suppliers, app vendors, where are they storing stuff, how, how do they think about the security around it to um, ensure they've got a reasonable answer to those questions because if they don't, they're probably not keeping your information safe. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, CyberTalk Radio. You can check out our website uh, for past programs or uh, to catch a full archive of uh, this show if you missed some of it at www.cybertalkradio.com.